Last week, uh, we, we really just dealt with the first three verses of James 4, and we asked uh, the question, and, and I said last week, I think we probably always ask this, or you could always ask this, but especially there are some moments in Scripture where you need to ask yourself, if you believe that what the Bible is saying is true, um, and, and if it is, then there, there's implication and application to be made. Um, what the Bible did in 1, 2, and 3 of James 4 is it diagnosed the cause of our quarreling and fighting. And a lot of times I'll say, listen, I don't think this is comprehensive. I don't think this is everything that might cause that. Uh, this is not one of those times. I really feel like when, when God says, what's the source of quarrels and fighting among you? Isn't it this? Th that's pretty much it. Right? So we broke that down into three things. Passions within us, desires within us are at warfare, and then our desires are at war with one another's within the context of the church. We, we, second, we want things that we can't or don't have, so we become envious and uh, you know, murder. We looked at Ahab's desire for Naboth's vineyard, and you know, we all know what happened there. Uh, a murder scheme resulted. When we see other people in possession of things that we can't get, quarreling and fighting tend to emerge. And then third, we said uh, poor motives, right? Um, I mean, he says it. You ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong, wrong motives. So we went and looked at Judas in John 12 and uh, saw just the overwhelming concern that Judas had for the poor um, and then the Holy Spirit helps us out by saying, but he really wasn't worried about the poor. He just used to steal from the tithe box and thought he should have that money that got spent. Um, the outcome of these three sources of, of, of sin is quarreling and conflict, according to God. I think we agreed for the most part God's right here. We, I mean, he's definitely right. I'm saying for the most part we agreed. Uh, that he's right in, in diagnosing the root of our fighting as one of these things. Unfortunately, that, that left us no time to look at the cure last week because uh, I did such a meticulous job of addressing those three causes, <clears throat> we ran out of time. So we'll pick it up in verse 4 today and, and hopefully see six things that uh, we should do in order to reduce the likelihood of quarreling and fighting. James chapter 4, verse 4. <clears throat> you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Three points quickly. Uh, there's, I, don't, I didn't count them up. There's probably closer to 15 different points that I'll make in the course of this sermon. Some are sub points. Uh, these are sub points 2.1. All right. So, the, but you got to have this stuff or the whole thing falls apart first. Adulterers should be understood spiritually. It's not like he's just talking to all the people in the church who were engaged in some kind of fornication. The idea that's conveyed by you adulterous people is that 
uh, quarreling and bickering among the members of the church is an indication of individual people possessing a divided heart. That was a mouthful. Let me illustrate it this way. If I claim to love my wife and I also love a few other women, she would be right to wonder how legitimate my claim to love her is because my affections are divided. So what peace then should I expect in my home when I come back from a date with someone else to, to have dinner with her? Yeah, that's not going to work. Similarly, if I'm overcome with worldly lusts and my prayers cease and my devotion to God looks no different than that of somebody who's lost and unconverted, what peace will my soul have with God? Probably not any. Spiritual adultery is what happens when your heart runs after something uh, other than God. All right, that's... Point one, we've got to understand adultery spiritually. Second, look at Matthew 4, 8. Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So this is point two. The world here in James's reference to fellowship with the world or friendship with the world should be understood as... All that stuff that the devil showed Jesus when he was tempting him up on the mountain. So all these treasures, all these riches. I think that's important because enjoying the beauty of nature or a good song that's not a hymn uh, or a delicious meal, that's not loving the world or being you know, in friendship with the world in a sinful sense. Enjoying the company of somebody who does not believe the gospel is not friendship with the world in a sinful sense. The Puritans might, some of them might take issue with me for saying that, but I'm here and they're not, so... However, becoming preoccupied with the things of the world the people of the world, and the pleasures which are offered by them is probably friendship with the world. Okay, So, one, adultery, we need to understand spiritually. Two, friendship with the world is being consumed with all the stuff that the devil showed Jesus during his temptation. We good? Third, jealousy. I'm going to split this one up into three sub-points. Sorry, it has to be done because there's a textual issue first, and then there's an interpretive issue, and then we need to explain jealousy uh, because of how I'm going to interpret the first two things. All right, so verse 5 says, Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He's made to dwell in us? You don't get to tune out. You have to pay attention. These things matter. Trust me. My tone of voice fails to communicate that. Hopefully the slapping of my hands together occasionally does. 
Uh, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. Nowhere in your Bible do those words appear other than right here in James. So the difficulty then is, what are we to make of that? James is quoting a scripture we don't have. Okay, that's a possibility, granted. There's some sacred text lost to us over the millennium. Um, let me ask you this, though. Does the sense of that verse appear elsewhere in Scripture? Is it adrift in other passages? Well, that, that depends on how you understand the verse. So here's the second point. Who, what, what, who is the pronoun he, quote, he referring to there, us or God? Because commentators, I'll tell you, they're split both ways. Uh, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he, is that God or is that mankind? He yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. Because depending on how you interpret that, uh, jealousy is assigned accordingly, right? Either God is jealous or we are. And those that are, you know, a little bit squeamish about designating God as jealous would say, well, this must be talking about that he must refer to man. That must be us. And so then we have a spirit of envy. Uh, well, the problem with that is elsewhere in Scripture, our corruption is not often referred to as a spirit. It's usually referred to as a curse, a sin, a sickness, or our nature. So I, I disagree. It, it makes far more sense for me to interpret this as God yearns jealously for the soul of man who he has made. Or even God is jealous of the spirit he made to dwell within us. Since the sense of that is found elsewhere in scripture, Exodus 25, uh, Exodus 34, 14, Deuteronomy 4, 24, Deuteronomy 5, 9, um, there's a couple passages in Numbers, Joshua 24, 19, all contain some reference to God's jealousy. Uh, which brings us to the third point, isn't jealousy a sin? Here again, we have an interpretive and textual problem. In the English language in the United States of America, we have made, over the decades, we have made jealousy and envy synonymous. They used to mean different things, but they don't anymore, unfortunately. They should still mean different things. Jealousy used to mean the desire to keep that which belongs to you. And envy meant the desire to have that which belongs to somebody else. And if we define our terms carefully, jealousy is never a sin for God because all things belong to him. Envy is not something for which God can be guilty or a, an emotion which he can possess. When we anthropomorphize God, which the Bible does in order to help us kind of understand and comprehend him, we ascribe certain feelings to him that, that they're not like exactly accurate, but work to help us understand him, right? Uh, jealousy, the desire to keep what one has, carries with it a kind of like a helpless con connotation. Like, well, God's jealous because, man, he really, he doesn't want anybody to take his stuff. No, God's not helpless. So there's a limit to the anthropomorphization that we can do. God is not a human. He's different. He's the creator. Is God a jealous God? 
Yes, in the sense that he will have what belongs to him and nobody else will. Right? Is God a jealous God? No, in the sense that he possesses no envy. And we have corrupted the meaning of the word jealous to mean things that I really don't think it should. Let's review. First, adulterous needs to be understood spiritually. Christians are adulterers when they run after things, uh, passions and pleasures that the earth offers uh, rather than running after deeper communion with God. Second, the world here should be understood as all that Satan showed Jesus during his temptation. And then third, God rightfully desires the souls of mankind to be preoccupied with him. We good with that? It'd be weird if you were like, no, and came up and took the mic. So let's apply what we've just learned or maybe you didn't just learn it, maybe you've been reminded of it, okay? We want to cultivate a culture of kindness, hospitality, peace, joy, love here at Springfield Baptist, right? Healthy relationships. That's a goal. And some of us have been in churches long enough to realize that doesn't just happen by default. You have to work at it. You want to have healthy relationships you're going to have to do some stuff. So to that end, we want to avoid quarreling and fighting. Amen? Good. <clears throat> Glad we're all on the same page with that. We saw last week that if we fight, it is because one of or all of three things. Our passions at war within us, our envy, or our poor motives. So we want to head passions, envy, and poor motives off at the pass. Like get them dealt with before they spill out and make a mess. Here's step one of six. Ask God for grace. <clears throat> Excuse me. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell within us? But... He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, <clears throat> like before, three things to take away. Friendship with the world puts you at enmity with God. Remember, the world is to be understood as all that stuff that Satan showed Jesus. The world, friendship with that, finding all your pleasure and enjoyment in that, puts you at enmity with God. God jealously desires your worship. That's two. One, friendship with the world. Two, God jealously desires your worship. I think this is more important than we can comprehend, really. I can't say it enough. And the only good illustration I know of this, because it's such a dicey subject, um, I'm going to give you from C.S. Lewis. And I've given you this before, probably in the last year. I don't know. Joelle were here, she would let me know right away, but she's not. So C.S. Lewis said before he was converted, before he became a Christian, when he read the Psalms especially, what he heard was God sounding like a little old lady trying to get everybody to appreciate her cooking. It makes me chuckle because if you're lost, that's exactly what, praise me. Right? That's what you read if you're lost in the Psalms. When you're saved from sin and begin to understand the heartache, the misery, the suffering, the destruction, the brokenness which is brought about by human beings designated, designating 
anything other than God as an object of our worship, when you see the brokenness that comes from worshiping things other than God, you begin to appreciate why God is so insistent that we worship him. Listen to me. When we put the weight of human worship on anything but God, human worship crushes that thing. Doesn't matter what it is. If it's another person, if it's an iPad, it, it, like anything will get crushed by your worship. This is also why, if you want to kind of turn it around and look at it from a different angle, when you are preoccupied with getting someone else's approval or attention or affection, the more diligently you work for that, the more desperately you want it after you get it. So they give you a taste of approval, attention, or affection. It does not satiate your appetite. It makes you hungry for you are more desperate. You need more of their approval. You need them to do what? You need them to worship you. You're being crushed under the weight of another human being's worship and your desire to have it. Lewis understood this when he became a Christian. God commands our worship because he designed us to worship and he knows that human worship is heavier than human strength. So he jealously desires our worship. How many celebrities need to crumble to dust in Hollywood before we, you know, like put two and two together? People aren't built for this. People can't handle this. So point one was friendship with the world puts enmity, puts you rather at enmity with God. Point two, God jealously desires your worship for your good. Third, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Oh, that's simple. We've heard that since infancy in the church. You can be either a friend of God or a pleasure seeker in passing things. You can be a worshiper of the one who made you or a worshiper of idols, or you can be prideful or humble. So what I've done there is there's, there's three ones or the others, right? So the first one is seek friendship with God or seek passing pleasures, friendship with the world. Second, a worshiper of the one who made you or worshiper of idols. And I want these things to kind of congeal in your mind. Third, prideful or humble. So the outcome of seeking pleasure in worldly trinkets, quarreling and fighting. The outcome of worshiping idols, quarreling and fighting. The outcome of being prideful, more obvious to us, right? Quarreling and fighting. Accuse me of beating a dead horse if you want, but I think this is necessary. I think we, we have to do it this way. We're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to reverse it. Okay? Preoccupied with passing pleasures, engaged in idolatry, engaged in hypocritical prideness. Get that picture in your head. Preoccupied with passing pleasures, engaged in idolatry, engaged in hypocritical pridefulness. What is the cause? Your passions are at war and the wrong ones are winning. You're envious and you have poor motives. So this correlates to one, two, and three. I'll show you again. Uh, it's one of these things. Pursuit of passing pleasure leads to spiritual adultery. Verse four, look at it. You adulterous people, remember, adultery has to be understood spiritually. So, pursuit of passing pleasure leads to spiritual adultery. Verse 4, envy leads to idolatry. My satisfaction can only be found in this thing that I want. Verse 5, look at verse 5. And remember Ahab and the vineyard. 
Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose the scripture jealous, says he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us. So envy leads to idolatry. My satisfaction can only be found in this thing that I want. Ahab in the vineyard. Envy. Third, bad motives lead to hypocritical pridefulness. Pretending things, including me, are other than they are is hypocrisy. Right? Judas, oh man, what about the poor? He didn't care about the poor. He's putting on an act. Which causes three things. Me and my guilt to see God as an enemy. When you have sinned, how do you view God? As a kindly father waiting for you to turn your face and look at him again? Or is his visage a little marred right when you get done doing something evil? Puts you at enmity with God. Now, has God changed? No. Why do Adam and Eve hide in the garden after they sin? Did God change? No, but their sin put them at enmity with him. And so he comes down and he goes, hey, where y'all at? They were at enmity. I see God as my enemy. Second, I worship things which are unworthy. Third, I become arrogant. How does... Viewing God as my enemy make me feel about his people. Perfect timing. Really put the period on. Second, how does worshiping unworthy things make me see his people? Third, how does me being arrogant make me behave toward his people? I mean, gosh, I I can't imagine where quarreling and fighting come from. Yeah, we can. How does asking God for grace fix any of this? You're like, I already forgot. That's what you were talking about? Yes. The first cure for this whole situation was ask God for grace. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I said, that's thing number one. Well, asking God for grace demonstrates friendship with God is the desire of my heart. Now, I'm not going to earn friendship with God. I'm not going to earn compatibility with God. I'm not going to convince God that I'm more worthy than I am because he sees right through my shtick, unlike some of you, perhaps. Right? Okay? So asking God for grace means I want to be your friend, and the only way that's going to happen is if you don't give me what I deserve and do give me that which I do not deserve. Kindness, right? Second, asking for grace implies I understand where real power and authority is seated. I need God to be gracious because I understand he could mush me like with less than a breath, with a thought. Third, asking for grace requires humility in the one asking. So that's our first step to heading off quarreling and fighting at the pass. Be a person asking God for grace. Second, submit to God. First part of verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. I mean, it couldn't be much more obvious where I got this point, right? My circumstances are ordained by, decreed by God, right? I mean, he's either in charge or he's not. I'm going to say he's in charge. So if my circumstances are ordained by him, sinning to get what I want is only going to lead to fear, shame, and guilt, right? Yielding myself to God's providence Even when his providence and his decree is breaking my heart, 
yielding myself to God's providence will produce peace in my life. Submit yourselves to God. Clear instruction from scripture, okay? That doesn't mean if you don't like what's going on in your life that you have to stay there. It means if you don't like the circumstances of your life, you don't sin to get out of them. You submit, I'm yielded. God, I understand this situation is bringing you glory somehow. I don't think that, like how miserable I am determines how glorified God is, but I do understand that some situations which bring about heartache and sorrow in me are yet bringing him glory, and I need to be yielded to that reality. I'm not the main character, right? Told you guys this before. We watch movies, some guy running through a battlefield, surviving, while dudes are dying left and right around him, and we all think, that's me. I'm the main character. No, you died 30 seconds into the movie. We don't matter, relatively speaking. Jesus is the main character, right? So submit yourself to God. You, you can find a way to change your circumstances, which does not involve sinning. Submit to God. Three of six. Resist the devil. Verse seven, uh, the rest of it, right? So the first part was submit to God. The rest of it says resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here stands the devil uh, waving all of the treasures that he showed to Jesus in front of your nose and you can have it all. <clears throat> you just have to worship him. Uh, nobody in this room is taking that bait, right? The devil could saunter down either one of these two or float or come up, I guess, with a briefcase, with a billion dollars in it, tell you it's all yours, you just have to worship him. And there's not a person in this room that's taken that deal because we're not stupid enough to take that deal, right? We're not. I mean, we'd be like, yeah, billion dollars, nice try. Damn my soul for a billion dollars, not going to happen. We're too smart for that. I've never, ever seen a church member take a billion dollar deal from the devil, but I've seen plenty of quarreling and fighting in the church. So it must be that there's something else going on here. We're not so sly. Maybe the devil's more subtle than we realize. Resisting the devil means something very specific in the context of human relationships. So you want to know what word the ESV, NASB, NIV, KJV get devil from? It's diabolo, right? And we're like, diablo, not Spanish. Diabolo in the Greek, which is normally translated more uh, as slanderer. Well, now the radar is going around in your head. Now the bells are starting to ring. You're like, oh, slandering. What did we spend the first half of James 3 talking about? Oh, yeah, the use of the tongue. Behold, what a great forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And in a brilliant uh, act of teaching, I conveyed to you the story of the Taylor wildfire, uh, the Taylor complex wildfire in Alaska. And I said, oh, man, it was such a huge fire. If you go from uh, uh, Missouri Valley to Nebraska City over to Lincoln, up to Fremont and back over, that's how much space it burned up. So you would never forget as long as you live how great a forest is set aflame by such a little fire. And the whole point was this thing can wreck. This thing can create havoc and mayhem. Right? So uh, forget the briefcase full of money. Resisting the devil means resisting the temptation to destroy somebody's reputation. 
Let's do that. Well, it's tough when people are idiots. Oh, okay, that's fine. Don't laugh. Leave me alone up here. Uh, I like the idea of the devil running away embarrassed because I didn't cave in and destroy somebody's reputation. I like that idea. Although I'm not sure the devil's capable of embarrassment, it does say he will flee. You resist, you resist, he will flee. Fourth of six, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Verse eight. That's exactly what it says. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Why is it when it's time to pray, when it's time to read the Bible, when it's time to sing, any distraction will suffice? Look, I'm not trying to pick on you, but it cracks me up. Y'all can't make it 15 minutes into a sermon before you're getting up going to the bathroom. It kills me. Absolutely kills me. I'm like, I want to watch you at a movie sometime. See if you're jumping up in 15 minutes. Like, well, movies are interesting. Shh, nobody asked. The promise is really plain, though. You do this, he'll do that. Right? You draw near, he'll draw near. And yet we struggle to draw near to him, don't we? Well, what happens when we don't draw near to God? What happens when we don't draw near to God is we are built for worship, so we're going to worship something. And the outcome of that, spiritual adultery, idolatry, hypocrisy, and we cozy up to the world of temptation. And the outcome of that is quarreling and fighting. Draw near to God. What do you do during worship? So it's cool now uh, we can be even more martyrs because now we're getting together on Thursday nights as a band. Having band small group over at the Perry's. And... You're welcome to come if you want to come. Just be aware uh, Matt is in the process of finding somebody competent to restore his bathroom. So if you come, it's backyard bushes, okay? You're welcome to come and sing with us. We get to be even more martyrs because then we come in here uh, and set all this up and then sing uh, at, from 9 to about 9.25 to rehearse and warm up. And then you all come in and we, we start singing and you're not singing. You're sinning against us that much more. Now a whole nother night of the week we've given up for you to just stand there with your hands in your pockets. You should be ashamed of yourself. Or if that doesn't work, let's try it this way. What do you do during worship? Where is your heart? Where is your mind? What are you doing if you're not singing? I don't like singing. Okay, but what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you thinking about during the sermon? What are you doing, doing while everybody is uh, catching up out in the entryway? What are you doing during prayer? What, what, what do you do during the week when you have time to read your Bible? What do you do during the week when you have time to draw near to Jesus and spend some time in prayer, right? So that, like the instruction is do these things. And I just laid them out for you, like ways we can draw near to God on the surface, worship, listen to a sermon, fellowship, pray, read your Bible, spend time with Jesus. That's the instruction. Do these things. What will God do? Right, listen, look. Look right at me. Everybody, look, I, okay. You, nope, some of you aren't looking. I'm gonna, I'm not stopping until you're looking. All right. All right, good, Owen, good job. Uh, 
you draw near to God, he will draw near to you, right? So Luke 15, we all know the story. Don't even go there. You can check if I'm right later. Kid goes to dad, dad, give me my half of the inheritance. I'm out. Takes half of his inheritance, goes, squanders it with lose living. Whatever nasty thing you want to imagine, that's what he was doing. All his money's gone. He's living in a pigsty, literally, not the one we accuse our teenage sons of living in, a literal pigsty. Afraid to eat the pods that the pigs are being fed, lest he lose his job feeding them and the little bit of money that he's getting for doing it. And he comes to his senses and he realizes, even my father's servants are treated better than this. I should just go home and be a servant in my father's house. So he gets up, <coughs> leaves the pig sty and heads home, right? And then here's what verse 20 says. He arose and came to his father, Luke 15, 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Jesus is revealing something about the heart of God to us here. It's a little harder to see in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God's kind of... Uh, stomping around setting stuff on fire and we're like oof when you get to the new testament you see this different picture of god but it's the same god through and through the same god that covenanted with jesus before the the creation of anything to redeem a people says if you draw near to me i will draw near to you and here's what i'm guessing god moves a little faster than i do so if i move in his direction he's right there He's right there. You draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. Fifth, back in James 4, second part of 8 and verse 9. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart. <laughs> you double-minded, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. All right, how do we do that? Cleanse and purify. How, how do we be miserable and mourn? Like, why would God want that? <laughs> Listen, there's nobody else here. It's just you and me. Let's be honest with each other, okay? Aren't you kind of anyway? Like, if you're living for yourself, trying to get people to love you, preoccupied with current events, obsessed with some celebrity, counting on Congress, the Senate, the President, hoping nobody at school notices your flaws, pretty sure you're always about to get fired, uh, struggling to keep your family together, taking inventory and realizing that, you know, life is just a vapor and I haven't made as much of mine as I thought I was going to. And time's running out. Trying to figure out how to raise kids in this culture, spinning all the plates, trying to keep bills paid and food on the table and a roof over the head. Sick to your stomach over the news every night, sick to death of everybody's social media, highlight reel, exhausted but you can't sleep, fat but nothing makes you skinny, bald and minoxidil were a scam, constantly hearing what a creep you are from people who love to lie about you, constantly disappointing your parents, <laughs> but not really, it feels like it, waking up with some new pain or growth, or symptom, paying exorbitant taxes to a government that's supposed to be of the people, for the people, going to bed with some new worry or fear. Like, aren't you already kind of miserable? Well, when you put it that way, <laughs> I 
Isn't your life already a bit marked by anxiousness or anger or both? And can't you lay much of the blame for all of that on your own sin? I'm not even saying all of it. We don't have to go reformed right now. Let's just be honest. Isn't some of it your fault? I'm a worm. Don't go that far. Psalm 51, 15, David says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So here's what I'm suggesting. Like, let the plates fall. Quit spinning them. Let them fall. Let the waves of anxiety just wash right over your head. Just sink. Just bloop, 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 bloop. Go on down. Let the weight of all the people you've disappointed really crush you. Don't fight it. I mean, who's kidding who, right? You're awful. You can project all the strength and competence you want out into the world around you. God sees through it. You can't clean your hands. You can't purify your heart. I defy you to have 10 consecutive seconds of pure thoughts. Can't be done. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your heart be broken. Let your spirit be broken. Because... The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. And then 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us and to forgive us. That's how you purify your hands. That's how you purify your heart. How about we do that instead of this white knuckle thing that we've been doing? What's the outcome of that anyway? All of our best efforts. Sixth, verses 10, 11, and 12. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who's able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Here's what I think just because we don't have a ton of time left. Some of you are like, you're out of time. Yeah. I think it's hard to draw near to God with a broken heart. Confess your sin and your need to him. Receive mercy and grace and forgiveness and cleansing. Walk out of the throne room. See Nicole and judge her. I think it's hard to do that. It doesn't have to be Nicole, everybody. You're like, yeah, it would be Nicole. Anybody. Be hard to walk out of the throne room of grace and be harsh and critical and narrow-minded and ruthless. Six things the Bible's telling us to do if we want to bring an end to quarreling and fighting. Number one, ask God for grace. Asking for grace implies you understand who and what you are. 
and who and what he is. Amen? Second, submit to God. Don't sin to change your circumstances. Be yielded. It doesn't work to sin. Like submit. Do what God says and seek to change your circumstances that way. Third, resist the devil and he will flee. Don't slander people to make yourself look and feel better. Resist that temptation. Fourth, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a promise. Should have stopped there. Right? Fifth, be miserable if you need to be. Don't stuff it down. Just let be miserable. Maybe you need to be miserable. Mourn and weep. Cleanse your hands and your heart, which means confess your sin. Bravado will not cover your sin, but Jesus will. And six, stop judging one another. You can't receive mercy and then not give mercy. We've just cured quarreling and fighting at Springfield Baptist Church. We'll see how we do. Let me pray. I'll ask the band to come up in just a minute. Let me pray.